Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? Struvel Peter by Tony Walker In der düsteren Welt des Struvel Peters, sieh her, verschlingt er dein Fleisch und Knochen sehr. Im Dulken verschlingt er die Seele ganz, nur Flüstern des Grauens bleibt dann. Carl Weston tramped through the relentless German rain his boots sinking into the muddy ground with each step, and every time he walked on, the earth pulled at his feet, as if it wanted to keep them. Over the last week he'd hiked over a hundred miles of the Westfeck long-distance trail from Pforzheim through the Black Forest, and he now stood contemplating the desolate Hochkopf rising before him. The daily walking, the dampness, the dreary weather had all worn him down and conspired together to make this the most challenging part of the journey. Carl considered the heavy fog that shrouded the landscape, making it impossible to see more than a few metres ahead, though it wasn't fog so much as settled cloud, as if the distinction made any practical difference. And so Carl began the 120-metre ascent from Henspeck to the Hochkopf, he was a fit man. His body was tired from the days of damp hiking, but even so, his mind was unaccountably ill at ease. His feet were wet, but that was his own fault. He'd considered getting some seal skins, but he thought they were too expensive. Now his heels and soles were blistering and sore. But this unease that gripped him was more than that. It wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. And Carl Weston was not a man usually given to the consideration of spiritual matters. He reached the plateau of grass and reeds. The unforgiving weather, loneliness and poor visibility transformed the moorland into a hauntingly inhospitable place. He hadn't seen anyone at all since he left his small hotel that morning. No one else was daft enough to be out and about in this weather. But something about the lack of living creatures spooked him. He knew his fears were irrational, and that the eerie lack of life here was simply due to all sensible people and animals seeking shelter somewhere drier, but the nagging feeling persisted. He trudged on. This walk was bloody endless. What he wouldn't give now for a cup of tea and a piece of Victoria's sponge, or even a bit of Black Forest Gatto. Then, when his spirit was at its lowest, a faint silhouette emerged through the low clouds and rain. He peered forward, and with each step an abandoned house materialised before him. It was obvious it was abandoned from its state of disrepair. The roof still held, but the windows were broken, and trees had sprouted from the chimney. This was the first house he'd seen in a long time, and, as grim as it looked, it represented shelter from the bleakness all around. He had miles to go, and he knew he really should push on, but his feet were sore, and he was so weary of this rain. Rain ran into his eyes from his soaked eyebrows. He sighed. This relentless driving rain was sapping his normally buoyant spirit. He stopped and took out the high-quality German map made of plastic that would not come apart in the soaking rain. The hotel he planned to reach that day was a staggering nine miles away. He looked the house up and down. There was nobody around for miles. 
What harm could it do to seek shelter for a while, hoping the rain would ease so he could continue on his way? Carl approached the dilapidated structure and stopped just before the front step. The door was just in front of him. Someone had forced their way in at one time and it stood an inch open now. The house windows on the ground floor were cracked and covered in grime. He went up to the broken pane and shouted, Hello? Hello? But no one answered. The rain hammered down on the hood of his coat. Carl shrugged. He stepped closer to the door and punted it with his boot. The lock was long gone, and the creaking door protested as he pushed it open, revealing a musty interior. Carl had the weirdest feeling telling him not to enter. He even stood there for a minute, then told himself not to be so stupid, and went in anyway. The fear bubble. You feel the fear, and use it like a motor. He propelled himself through the door like he was clearing houses in Sangin still. Carl entered the porch, the damp smell bringing him back to where he was rather than where he had been. This was not Afghanistan. Looking around, he saw the house was a wreck, but enough of it still stood to keep out the rain. The place offered little in the way of comfort. There were four downstairs rooms, all damp, all full of wind-blown weeds and branches, with wallpaper peeling and mould tracking up the walls. He didn't look in all of them. What would the point be? They were all the same. There was also what appeared to be a cellar. Carl peered down the rotten wooden steps, but didn't venture down there. Lord alone knew what he'd find. There was an upstairs, too. He reckoned the upstairs might be drier, though when he climbed the rickety stairs it proved not to be. Even so, he felt more comfortable being up above the ground floor, and especially away from the cellar, as if something might seep up from the earth into the house. In this room stood mildewed chairs, wardrobes that hung open, a broken chest whose drawers had been dragged out and wrecked on the floor, and in the middle of the room, the rusted frame of a bed that looked like he would fall through it. Carl stood on the filthy floorboards, sleeping bag in hand. He wondered if there was a chance of setting a fire to warm him through, but everything was damp, even the wardrobe. He had his gas burner in his pack that he used to make a brew and heat water for pot noodles. That might have to do as a heat source. He wandered over and peered through the cracked window, Part of it, at the top, about the size of a fist, was gone, but otherwise the sharp glass kept out the worst of the bad weather. It was still day outside, but hardly. The rain beat down, the downpour loud through the broken window. Carl shivered, and not from the cold. What was it with this place? This house felt odd, uncomfortable, like it had seen bad things. There was something disquieting about the place, an atmosphere, they might call it. But then, to be isolated in a rainstorm, clouds sitting down on the moor, visibility twenty feet at best, marooned in a damp, abandoned house on a deserted moor, that was enough to make anywhere feel a bit eerie. Course it was, mate. Get a grip. He cleared a corner of the room, pushing aside debris and setting up his sleeping bag on the relatively dry floor. He unpacked his meagre rations, consuming a cold meal of peppered salami and black bread with water as he listened to the rain outside. Jeez, he thought, the whole world will fill up with water. At this rate, I'll need a bloody ark. Hours passed. That was a skill he'd developed in the army, all soldiers do. The ability to sit and do nothing, not even think. Outside, 
darkness settled on the Hochmoor. Looked like he wouldn't be going anywhere that night. Never mind, it was always tomorrow. He thought about his meds. The packets were inside a sealed plastic bag inside his pack, olanzapine, diazepam, fluoxetine. He hadn't taken them since he started the walk. He didn't need to. Nature was his cure. Even rainy nature. He felt sleepy and lay on his sleeping bag and the sounds of the storm lulled him into a fitful doze. He was tired. He was damp. But despite the discomfort, he still slept. In his dreams, things moved out of sight. In one particular dream, he was being watched from the corner of the room. Something saw him sleeping, something that came out of the house. It watched him and his sleeping body with malevolent gaze. Troubled by dreams, but unaware of his watcher, Carl tossed and turned, but didn't wake. Not at first, anyway. The afternoon became evening, and the evening became night. Still it rained. Still his nightmare progressed. At about 9pm, something moved downstairs. Carl sat bolt upright. What the effing Jeff was that? Carl stretched for his sheath knife. It was designed for cutting open parcels and whittling wood, not necks. But still... The blade was sharp, and the hilt in his hand was reassuring. All was silent now. Had the noise been part of the dream? His heart beat slower, his breathing became more gentle. His life had been plagued by nightmares and flashbacks ever since he'd finished. This was all that was. As he stood on the edge of sleep again, awaiting the boatman to carry him over to the nether side, another sound came. Instantly awake, he knew someone was definitely downstairs. He gripped his knife harder. Should he call out, or should he lie still in the hope they wouldn't come upstairs and they'd leave without finding him? Maybe it was the owner came back, but then he looked around. A faint light from the windows was enough to see what a shit tip this was. It wasn't the owner come back. This place had no owner. But whoever it was that was down there moved again. They were coming this way. Quietly, Carl extricated himself from his sleeping bag. He'd taken his gaiters and waterproof pants off, and they lay with his rain jacket on the floor beside him, but he kept his long johns and T-shirt on. Now he stood, knife in hand and felt that mix of terror and exhilaration that always came before combat. He told himself this wasn't war. It was just a damp old house, and he was on a walking holiday. But it felt the same. Carl stepped towards the door. He'd closed it when he'd first come in, but the catch hadn't held, and it had swung slightly open, so there was a gap of about three inches that allowed him to stare along the landing and see the top of the stairs. A window at yon end let in a faint light. He couldn't see anybody yet, but he could hear them climbing. The intruder mounted the stairs. He was making a noise. He clearly wasn't trying to be stealthy. Carl thought maybe he should duck back into the room and whoever it was would walk past, but this room was the first one they'd come to. So here's the question, he thought. 
Do I yell out hello now and warn whoever the fuck this is to fuck off, or do I just stab the twat? The man was at the top of the stairs now, apparently oblivious of Carl. He was lighting his way with the torch of his phone. The stranger probably wasn't expecting anyone to be lurking in the dark with a knife in their hand. Carl saw the man had a backpack with hiking poles strapped to the side. His posture was weary, not menacing. Just a hiker like me, Carl thought, relaxing. Just some poor sap seeking shelter from the storm. As the figure neared the top of the stairs, Carl called out, Wer ist da? Wer bist du? The bloke froze like a rabbit in the headlights, unsure whether to run. There was enough light from his phone for him to see the blade Carl held gleaming. Entschuldigung, the man blustered, raising his free hand in a gesture of peace. Carl felt a dirty pleasure at the thought the man was scared of him, and right on the heels of that feeling, shame that he'd frightened some poor stranger. Carl had a lot of dark in him, just like you. And just like you, if you're honest. He hated, but loved too, the feeling of power frightening people gave him. The man swallowed, his wide eyes fixed on the knife. Karl hesitated, then slowly lowered it. In German, he replied, uh, Ich bin Karl, ein Wanderer. Ich habe hier Schutz uh, vor dem Sturm gesucht. The man seemed relieved and switched to English. Oh, I am sorry to disturb you. I thought I was alone. I am Markus. I, I apologize for the fright. This storm is quite unsettling. I wasn't frightened. Ah, Marcus laughed nervously. I was. You knew I was English. Marcus laughed. Yes, of course, your accent when speaking German. Do you mind if I share your shelter? Carl stepped back from the door. No problem, bud. Mi casa es su casa. I didn't see anyone all day. My feet were sore and I was wet through. I thought the rain might stop if I waited here for a while. Then I could go on. No, the rain hasn't stopped. See that? They both laughed. Marcus said, You are walking the Vestvek? Carl nodded. Me too. Marcus switched his torch to illuminate the poor room with its rusty bed frame. You have found a bed? Uh, no, I was sleeping on the floor. I've got a mat and a sleeping bag. Ah, I will do the same. I do not want to walk on further in the dark, Entvet. I have some schnapps, if you would like to share. Sounds good. I've got some bread and meat, but no drink. So, you're welcome. Carl usually avoided alcohol these days, but a mouthful of schnapps with a stranger wouldn't hurt. By the light of his phone, Marcus followed Carl into the room. Carl cleared his throat. This guy Marcus was no murderer, no werewolf, just one of those well-kept middle-aged German blokes. He probably had a full lycra cycling costume and a kayak. Marcus unrolled his mat and sleeping bag, and they sat. Carl offered food, which Marcus took. It felt companionable. Marcus produced some smoked cheese, which Carl took, and then he offered a half bottle of peach schnapps, which Carl took also. He sipped it, and the firewater made him cough. Marcus grinned. Good? Carl nodded. Good. Uh, out of practice drinking these days. They sat, grinning at each other in the light of Marcus's torch. Marcus suddenly suggested, Perhaps, Carl, uh, we can make the best of this situation. It's quite atmospheric in here. Why don't we pass the time by telling ghost stories? Carl tilted, he said. You're fucking kidding me. Ghost stories? 
No, I am not joking. I, I thought it would be a good idea, but, but if you are frightened, Carl winked. I'm not scared of things that don't exist. Good, so ghost stories or monster stories. I'm sure you have some chilling tales from England. But as I say, if you'd rather not. So this was how it was. The German figured he could spook him. Carl laughed, some kind of national rivalry. Carl had always liked the Germans, but he was blowed if he was going to let a German think he was scared of telling a few ghost stories. Carl grinned. You know what, Marcus, that's not a bad idea. I do have a few stories up my sleeve. Let's see if I can give you a taste of English ghostly folklore. Let's see if your nerves will take it. Oh, I'm sure they shall. Here he was on a rainy night on an isolated German moor sitting in an abandoned house with a stranger he'd just met. He'd spook the grinning German all right. Carl began his story. Goes like this. Many years ago, in this little Cumbrian village of Croglin, there stood a grand hall called Croglin Hall, as it happens. Very opposite. And Croglin Hall was an ancient place. Its walls whispered secrets of an ancient curse, a terror that lurked in the night. The legend spoke of a vampire, a creature born of darkness and bloodlust. Carl was milking it. You are quite the natural storyteller, Carl. Carl's voice dropped to a hushed tone. Then, in the middle 1600s, a brother and sister, Emily and Edward, moved into Croglin Hall. Little did they know that their lives were about to be forever changed. Marcus laughed. Oh! Carl raised a finger. One fateful night, as the moon hung full and bright in the sky, a chilling wind swept through their open window, heralding the arrival of the Kroglin vampire. Carl paused. He studied the German who sat there, his face weird in the phone light. Yeah, he actually looked scared. Carl's voice quivered, mimicking the terror that the characters in his story must have felt. Emily, unable to sleep, glanced out of her window only to freeze in terror at the sight of two glowing red eyes staring back at her from the darkness. Before she could react, the vampire lunged, crawling through the window and sinking its fangs into her delicate neck, sealing her fate. It was only then, in the grip of the monster, that Emily screamed. Marcus jerked back. What? Cal thought he must be putting this on. It was only a story. But of course, this house and the rain made a great backdrop for a horror story. Carl's voice dropped to a whisper. Her brother Edward came running at her scream. The candle he held flickered, casting dancing shadows across the room, illuminating the vampire. The vampire's features were grotesque and haunting. Its skin was deathly pale, stretched tightly over emaciated bones that seemed to jut out at odd angles. The creature's limbs were unnaturally elongated, ending in spindly, claw-like fingers that were ready to strike at any moment. Its eyes, hollow, and devoid of humanity, gleamed with an unholy crimson hue that pierced through the darkness like two malevolent beacons. Sunken deeply into its skull, they seemed to burn with an insatiable thirst for blood, 
and the promise of eternal darkness. From its gaping maw protruded razor-sharp fangs curved like daggers, ready to tear into the flesh of its unfortunate victims. A rank stench of decay and death hung round the creature, overpowering Edward's senses and bringing bile to his throat. The candle flickered, and the shadows danced across the vampire's misshapen form, adding to its already nightmarish appearance. The creature exuded an aura of malevolence, an undeniable atmosphere of ancient evil that sent a wave of terror crashing over Edward. Very good, Carl. The monster's attention now switched to Edward, and it lunged. He recoiled and ran. Now you may think this cowardice, Marcus said. I do, or you may see it for what it was. A cunning plan to draw the monster from his sister. Aha, of course, Carl went on. The vampire pursued the brother, its ghastly form gliding with unnatural swiftness through the dimly lit passages of the house. Edward's heart pounded in his chest, his breaths coming in desperate gasps as he frantically searched for a means of defence. He burst through into the study, his eyes scanning the room for anything that could aid him in this deadly confrontation. With trembling hands, he grabbed at objects, knocking over books and papers in his haste. In a stroke of luck, his hand landed on a silver letter opener resting on the desk. The moment his fingers wrapped around the cold metal, a surge of hope shot through him. He knew that silver was the vampire's bane, a weakness that could turn the tide of the battle in his favour. Marcus looked absorbed in the story. Carl went on. The vampire's evil eyes glimpsed the silver letter opener Edward held. The ancient fear of silver held it, and it knew that this was a weapon that could destroy it. With an unearthly scream of defiance, the vampire turned and ran away, its ghostly form darting like a shadow towards the nearest window. Edward watched as the creature, driven by fear and the need to stay alive, or rather undead, fled through the small hole and disappeared into the moonlight. Edward ran to Emily's side and found her unconscious but still alive. Her neck showed signs that the vampire had attacked her. She was unconscious, but as he checked her pulse, he felt relieved that she had survived. As dawn got closer, the sky brightened, giving a hint of hope. Emily woke up and her eyelids fluttered open. She sobbed and said, I fear the monster will return, Edward. Please go to its lair and destroy it before it comes back. Edward knew of the old chapel with its ancient crypts in the grounds of Croglin Hall. He knew. That was where he had to go. And this is a true story, Marcus said. Carl grinned. Every word. Marcus looked serious. Such things do exist, though modern people pretend they don't. Our ancestors knew better. With full dramatic effect, Carl continued. Edward left the house, his silver blade in hand. He headed across the grounds to the ruined chapel, with every step he took, the air grew heavier, as if the very atmosphere conspired against him. Edward pushed open the creaking door of the tomb, and there, lying in a stone coffin, was the vampire, its eyes burning with unholy hunger. 
With a heart pounding in his chest, Edward raised the gleaming silver dagger and struck with all his might, piercing the creature's heart. He ended with a flourish. That's it. Marcus did not speak. The room fell into an unsettling silence, broken only by the drumming rain outside. The weight of the story lingered in the air. Marcus finally broke the silence. That was truly bone-chilling, Carl. I can almost feel the vampire's presence in this very room. Thank you for sharing such a haunting tale. Carl nodded. You're welcome, Marcus. It's a story that has been passed down through generations in my hometown. And you believe every word is true? Like I said, every word. I'll take your word for it. Carl said, now it's your turn. See if you can scare me. Marcus nodded. Oh, I think I can. This is a story about a monster. A monster that is reputed to haunt the very moor where we find ourselves on this dark and rainy night. The only sound was the drumming rain as Marcus prepared to tell his tale, his face thrown into relief by the glow of his phone. He began, his voice low. Deep in the black forest, among the twisted trees, lurks Struvulpeta. With tangled, matted hair and gnarled limbs, this creature of nightmares and folklore is a grotesque sight. Carl grinned. It didn't scare that easy. Marcus went on. Struvulpeter haunts the lost souls who wander into its domain, feeding on their fear, relishing their torment. And tell me, are we in his domain? Indeed, Marcus nodded his expression grave. His prancing, gibbering form has been sighted in this very house, wandering from room to room and preying upon lost travellers, seeking shelter from the storm. Oh, yeah. Indeed, yes. On nights like this, when help is far away and the weather is closed in, these are the favourite nights for Stovelpeter to show himself. Karl reached for more schnapps. You won't find me such an easy mark, Marcus. I'm not scared of ghosts and ghouls and things that go bump in the night. Marcus chuckled but did not confirm or deny the accusation that he was deliberately trying to frighten Karl. Karl put the schnapps bottle down. Go on, you were telling me about Struvelpeter. Marcus leaned in lowering his voice to a chilling whisper. Some say Stovelpeter is a puppeteer controlling victims with strings of pure evil. Under its influence, they become helpless marionettes dancing to his twisted tune. Where does he come from? Stovelpeter's lair is an abandoned puppet theatre, hidden from prying eyes. There he orchestrates sinister shows that infect the nightmares of those who see them. Marcus described the decaying theatre, its tattered stage and curtains. Despite himself, the thought of twisted puppets controlled by Struvelpeter made Karl shiver, He'd always hated puppets and dolls. His older sister used to taunt him with hers when he was little because she knew they freaked him out. Marcus's voice became ominous. 
Legend has it, Stovel Peter ensnares those who cross its path, dooming them to eternal torment. Its echoing laughter still haunts the black forest's darkest corners, a chilling reminder of the terror that lies in wait for those he catches. But he must have a weak spot, all these monsters do. Like your vampire, exactly. In fact, Marcus continued his chilling whisper, it is the same one. They say only silver can stop Struvelpeter, just as it defeated the Kroglin vampire you spoke of. Not very original. It doesn't have to be original, Karl, as long as it's true. Karl laughed. Pity that we have no silver to defend ourselves from either the Kroglin vampire or from Struvelpeter. We are a long way from Kroglin, Karl, Marcus said. Ah, but not from Struvelpeter. No, Marcus whispered theatrically. We are very close to Struvelpeter. He tilted his head. But we are not helpless, because indeed I do have a weapon of silver. Just in case. Just a second. From his pack, Marcus produced a small silver knife with an ornate handle. This silver blade is our protection, should Struvelpeter appear. The metal is what matters, not the sharpness. Usually he behaves himself, but I keep it in case he becomes unruly. Carl didn't take him seriously. It's really silver. Oh, yes. Handy that you've got that, Carl said. Marcus laughed. But now our stories are told, I think we should get some sleep, Marcus winked, if we can. Carl laughed. If your mission was to scare me so I couldn't sleep, you failed, old mate. I tell you, monsters or no monsters, I'll sleep like a log, Marcus said. But I leave the silver blade on the floor, just in case. Carl awoke to silence, the darkness enveloping him like a suffocating shroud. Fumbling for his phone, he activated its pale glow. The display blinked back at him, 3.17 a.m., casting an eerie light on his surroundings. He glanced over at Marcus, but Marcus wasn't there. The red plaid flannel of Marcus's sleeping bag lay vacant on the ground beside him. There was a simple explanation. Marcus had probably gone out for a pee. He'd be back any second. Marcus's silver knife lay discarded next to his bag. Best thing was to get back to sleep. Carl closed his eyes. A while went by, but Marcus didn't come back. Carl listened and became aware of noises downstairs in the house. Must be Marcus, he thought. But who the hell's he talking to? More muffled shuffling in the faint murmur of German words, and Carl's heart began a furious drumming. Were they talking about him? He knew nothing about Marcus. What if this was a set-up, this house, the casual stumbling in of a poor benighted German traveller? It could easily be a set-up. And then Carl told himself, Steady, Carl, old lad, steady. This is just like the shit you used to think after you came out of the army. Yeah, the same old paranoid garbage that was unfortunately so compelling. Maybe Marcus was a psycho. Or a pervert. He might have to stab him anyway. The muttering kept going on and on. Carl was going to have to go down and see what he was about, front up to him like. 
Carl got out of his sleeping bag. He looked for his own knife, but couldn't find it. A jag of lightning thought popped into his head. Maybe Marcus took my knife. It was important to separate reality from these random thoughts. Things have normal explanations. Mostly things are safe, except when they're not. And when they're not, you have to deal with them. That's what soldiers do, except he wasn't a soldier anymore. But he knew if you cut him open, he'd have soldier written through him like a stick of Blackpool rock. It was where he was from. Poor working-class lads from Penrith and Workington and Dagenham and Swansea and Belfast become soldiers, and they learn to deal with things. Grunting impatiently, he gave up looking for the knife and crept to the top of the decrepit stairs and listened. If it was only Marcus, and Marcus was just an ordinary German dude, what did he need a knife for? Marcus, he called down, but his voice was barely audible. Nobody could have heard that. He was shaking. What the fuck was he scared of? Carl moistened his lips and called again, louder this time, but only the relentless rain answered him back, and he couldn't make out what it was saying. Yet, thank God. But he could still hear talking, and it was in German. You know, the voice didn't sound like Marcus. So where was Marcus? Descending slowly, Carl angled the light of his phone to see where he was going. He got to the ground floor. The front door was behind him, still open. But the muttering was coming from the cellar. Was Marcus fucking mental? Going down into the cellar and chuckling and talking to himself. I should just leave this. I should go back upstairs, put a chair against the door and wait until morning. If he comes back, I won't let him in. But he knew the rotten chairs in this place wouldn't keep anyone out, and neither would the rotten doors. There was no way he was going to sleep. He was going to have to go down. Carl took a breath and stepped onto the cellar stairs. He'd taken off his socks and the wood was damp under his soles. He lifted his phone and illuminated the steps so he didn't stumble, and when he got to the bottom, he stopped. Man, he was scared. Why was he scared? He was a big, strong man. He could handle himself. The cellar opened up to the right. He stood where he was and pointed the torch, and when its beam fell on the corner of the room, he thought, What the fuck is that? What the actual fuck is that? There was something on the floor. It was on its knees, facing into the angle of the corner. It was shaped like a man, but one thing was certain. It wasn't Marcus. It was standing over a heap on the floor, clothes or rags or, or a rolled-up carpet. The thing was moving its arms, holding them up. What was it doing? Dancing? Praying? Eating? He recognised what it was from Marcus's story. It was Struvel Peter. There he was with his sticky-up hair and his ragged clothes. Struvel Peter didn't turn round, even though it must know Carl was there. By its feet, an iPhone lay on the floor, a soft glow coming off its screen and lighting up the Struvel Peter from below. It was like some 1920s German expressionist black-and-white movie, and the phone looked like the one Marcus had. 
The figure kept jerking its head from side to side, as if singing. Bristly hanks of stand-up greasy hair, and a pale face with hollow cheeks, dark eyes, and teeth like a metal comb. It was holding things in both its hands, making them dance like puppets on strings. Of course, the Struvelpeter liked marionettes. He could smell it from here. The Struvelpeter smelled of old blood and the fetid stench of a grave's open mouth with its unfinished business within. Carl saw a dark liquid seeping across the floorboards from the rag roll that the fiend was playing puppeteer over. The liquid was too dark to be water. It must be blood. The puppets that the struvel pater madly jerked were made of gobbets of flesh and joints of meat, and the strings were made of sinew. Dance, dance, they jigged along. Struvel pater had obviously killed something, someone, and was playing with the poor sod's human remains. Jesus. Carl had seen plenty of men shredded by shrapnel and IEDs, parts of men lying on the road, shoes comically hanging from a truck's radiator with an ankle inside. But despite his old familiarity with such obscene horrors, revulsion gripped him. But retching as he was, he couldn't tear his eyes away. These remains must belong to Marcus. He hadn't heard a struggle, he hadn't heard the cries of a man in pain, a man being murdered, but that's what must have happened. Fuck me, Carl thought. I never even knew Marcus, but I'm not going to let this fucking freak, this fucking mentalist, murder an innocent man, a comrade of the road, and get away with it. And Carl realised he could kill the lunatic here in this empty house on this empty moor. He could get revenge for Marcus and all the other good lads and no do-gooder judge and jury would ever have any evidence to convict him. That damned thing would pay for what it had fucking done. But he was wise to it. When he did for it, it wouldn't be half-arsed. It would be a man's job. He needed a silver knife to kill the Struvelpeter. That's what the story said. Carl staggered back upstairs on trembling legs, just like combat. His knife wasn't there, so he searched desperately for Marcus's silver knife. He found it. He clutched it. The blade's edge wasn't as sharp as steel, but it was silver, and that would do the trick. Silver knife gripped tight in his right hand, phone in his left, its torch lighting his way. Carl crept back to the cellar. His mouth wasn't dry anymore. Adrenaline no longer fueled fear, but rather incited rage. No, no, he wasn't frightened of this freak. He was angry. He'd seen too many good men killed by filth who'd got away with it because of some convention or other, or some law made by people who didn't know what it was like to lose your oppo, your brother-in-arms, to some terrorist fuck. As Carl reached the bottom step, he steeled himself, his heart beating like a war drum in his chest. He switched off his phone. He didn't need light, he knew where it was, still kneeling in the corner. Marcus's phone screen still shone and he saw the creature kneeling there. He heard it too. Its voice was muffled, still talking to its puppets. It was completely engrossed in its grotesque performance, hunched like a puppeteer over Marcus's human remains. 
and the Struvelpeter's hands were filled with the strings of its grotesque marionettes, dancing, dancing, jigging along, and the air was thick with the smell of blood and death. In a surge of adrenaline, Carl lunged forward, the silver blade glinting in the phone screen light. Carl would put an end to this nightmare. This was no fucking fairy tale, and there wasn't going to be a happy ending. The creature spun round. The Struvelpeter's head snapped towards him, black eyes meeting his. Jesus, thought Carl, what the hell was this? It wasn't a man. It was a nightmare, and he felt it. It had him. The fathomless pits of its evil eyes paralysed Carl. He'd seen it so many times, men just frozen by fear, and now he was. Carl stood helpless as the Struvelpeter knocked the silver knife from his grasp. With inhuman strength, Struvelpeter's thin hands with their long, curling fingernails seized Carl's wrists. Its touch was icy cold. Carl struggled uselessly as it dragged him across the floor. Fetid breath choked Carl as the fiend bound him to a pillar using blood-soaked rags torn from Marcus's shredded sleeping bag. It wasn't Marcus's sleeping bag still upstairs, though. Secured, Cruelly tight, Carl could only watch as Struvelpeter return to its unspeakable show. Carl now clearly saw the pile of gore it played with, muscles, tendons, bones. He couldn't remember what colour shirt Marcus had worn, but there could be no doubt about it. These were human remains, butchered, shredded, blown apart. Bile flooded Carl's throat as Struvelpeter made the macabre puppets dance, their lifeless eyes seeming to follow Carl's gaze. They had eyes now, and hands and feet. He thrashed against his bonds, the rough material biting into his skin. Carl's pulse pounded in his ears, drowning out the creature's demented mutterings. Eventually, the Struvelpeter set down its puppets and turned, shuffling towards Carl with fingernails outstretched. He recoiled helplessly, pinned against the pillar as shrieks died in his raw throat. The fiend's icy fingers caressed Carl's face as a new puppet show began, a private performance just for two. The Struvelpeter's eyes glinted with a sadistic delight as he looked up his heavily accented voice slicing through the air like a razor. The Struvelpeter said, Welcome, Carl. I am delighted that you have graced my humble abode with your presence. How did it know his name? Carl's heart pounded in his chest, his mind reeling from Marcus's grisly face. What, what have you done to Marcus? Struvelpeter's grin widened, exposing jagged teeth, as he replied with chilling nonchalance, Is that what he was called? I found him here, and as no one else wanted him, I ate him. What do you want from me? Carl pleaded as it leaned over his tied-up form. Struvelpeter's eyes blazed with hunger, I want to devour you, too, but 
You're not dead yet. It leaned closer, fetid breath on Carl's face. Though that won't spare you from what's coming. Carl yanked against his bloody bonds, but he could not escape. Oddly, the Struvelpater's interest in Carl waned, and it returned to its gruesome human puppets. He watched the creature hunch over, muttering insanely while making the macabre marionettes dance with sharp jerks of its bony fingers. The dropped silver knife lay about six inches away from his heel. Seizing the opportunity created by the Struvelpater's distraction, Carl slowly dragged his bound feet across the clay floor of the cellar, inch by inch, angling towards the discarded silver knife. The cords dug into his ankles with each tiny movement. It was painful, but he had to get the knife. With immense effort, he finally managed to snag the knife between his shoes. Heart-pounding, Carl slid the blade back, then he healed it so that his stretching finger-ends touched it and tickled it like a fish into his grasp. The silver blade was not very sharp, but if he had time, he could saw at the rags that held him. And he had time. All the while he sawed, he kept a hawk-like watch on the preoccupied Struvelpeter. After agonising minutes, Carl felt the cords fray, then snap under the knife's edge. Wasting no time, he crept on trembling legs toward freedom. He was close to the bottom of the stairs up. Just as escape came within grasp, icy talons clamped down on Carl's shoulder, but Carl had the silver knife gripped in his right hand, and he twisted and plunged the shiny blade deep into Struvelpeter's pigeon chest. An unearthly shriek pierced the night, as inky blood seeped from the wound. Smoke issued from where the knife penetrated the creature's spindly form. Carl drew back the blade and stabbed again and again and again. The Struvelpater fell back, screaming a high-pitched girlish scream, holding its hands up like a jazz singer to ward off Carl's frenzied, merciless attack. The thing turned and fled up the stairs, but Carl seized its thin leg and yanked it back, stabbing at it as he did so, the knife going in again and again. That's for all the good lads you fuckers killed, you fucking heap of rags and sticks. The horror caught up and Carl doubled over, vomiting in choking heaves, dropping the bloodied silver knife from his shaking, blood-stained hand. He got to the bottom of the stairs. Carl climbed the stairs from the cellar. He was shaking. On the downstairs landing, a dim glimmer of light crept in through a shattered window as he pushed open the rotting door and breathed in the chilly morning air. He should be glad he'd escaped from that thing, but he felt a gut-heaving swirl of emotions. Hate, fear, revulsion, and rage. He shook like a leaf. He felt sick. He stood on the Hochmoor. The clouds had lifted and it was no longer raining. Then he remembered his pack and waterproofs were upstairs. He didn't want to go back into the house, but he made himself. His stuff was upstairs, but instead of going toward the steps up, he went to the steps down. He peered down into the cellar. 
He knew the remains of the thing he killed, the monster, the lunatic, the murderer, were lying in a heap at the bottom of the stairs, and though he didn't want to see them, though his bones quaked and his mind railed against descending those stairs, down he went, foot after foot after foot, until he was at the bottom, and the thing was at his feet, face down. With his foot he pushed at the corpse, and it didn't move, and then he pushed at the head of the Struvelpater, and as the face turned, he saw it was not the shock-haired naughty boy at all, but red-haired Marcus. Carl bent and picked up the bloody knife from where he dropped it on the floor. He knew he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his military service, and he knew it came from the horrific things he'd seen, but he also knew it came from the horrific things he'd done. His real fear was not letting in the monsters from outside, but letting out the monster he knew lived in himself. And then he heard the whining voice of the Struvelpater. It was coming for him again, singing, Dance, dance, jig along, Karl. Come join us killers in our dance of death. Knochen und Blut, das schmeckt so gut, mein Freund. Dein Ende naht, ich fresse dich ganz und gar. Who are you? Karl said. I am your shadow, said the Struvelpeter. And Karl smiled at the Struvelpeter. Let you and I then bow to the audience, my shadow. These people listening, clutching their bleeding hearts at my murdering Marcus. Let them remember they paid their taxes to make me a killer. So let's not have any crocodile tears when I kill. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried to How do they make so that was the Struvelpeter. I don't know if it's just Struvelpeter or by me, Tony Walker. And it, it was a dark song. So I'm going to, for some reason, quote, because I'm going according to how I feel these days and whatever's prompted to come up, that's what comes up. So Pete, I went to see Peter Gabriel recently, and this, these are some lyrics for his song, Digging in the Dirt. Something in me, dark and sticky, all the time it's getting strong. No way of dealing with this feeling, can't go on like this too long. This time you've gone too far. This time you've gone too far. This time you've gone too far. I told you. I told you. I told you. I told you. Digging in the dirt. Stay with me. I need support. I'm digging in the dirt to find the places I got hurt. Open up the places I got hurt. So that was Peter, not me. Um, so, you know, I write very sweet Christmas stories. And I write lovely ghost stories that make you feel lovely. Might be a bit sad, might be a bit sweet. And then I write things like this, or the Whitehaven Body Snatcher, which are dreadfully dark, and I wonder where they come from sometimes. So let me tell you something about the genesis of this story. It's a good word, isn't it? 
where it came from, its origins. So basically, I, I had just done this long-distance walk in the UK called the Ridgeway in June. And uh, so I got quite interested in long-distance walks. And in 2000, a long time ago, when my daughter was about six, we went to the Black Forest in Germany, which I liked. And there's something Germanic calling me, you know. And um, uh, so I had this idea about setting. And I've always uh, liked the story of the Struvel Peter. Because Struvel Peter, I think, from memory. No, let's not do from memory. Let's do it from, from Google. So Google tells me that Der Struvel Peter, Shockhead Peter or Slovenly Peter, is an 1845 German children's book written and illustrated by Heinrich Hoffmann. Uh, it comprises ten illustrated and rhymed stories, and they're, they're cautionary tales, and they were intended to um, teach children what not to be. And of course, this figure, although he's um, not an actual um, folklore figure, although he's a very archetypal, I think he's latched onto something, the shockhead Peter. Um, he, he, of course, I think he became the origin of uh, Edward Scissorhands with Johnny Depp. You know that movie there. Uh, but also there was um, a, a commercial for a drink called Metz, uh, like some kind of awful alcohol pop, I think, uh, in the 80s, 90s, 90s. And it was of this jerking, juddery creature that seemed to me to be the Struvel Peter. At least I've amalgamated them and conflated them. And it was um, fairly horrible. So you'll see that, um, and, and of course I need to say something about the swear words. I felt it was necessary artistically. Now, some people who like my twee stories, I've already had in the past. I don't use the F word much in the F bomb. I don't use it very much in um, uh, writing. But sometimes it it is true to the character. So um, so I've got this German Struvelpeter. I don't know why the Kroglin vampire got involved in this. He just did. So the story went along, and, and, and originally it was poor old Carl, and Carl wasn't a soldier, he was a hiker, and he met this Marcus who turned out to be the Struvel Peter, you know. And as time went on, it turned out that Carl was ex-military, and he'd seen some horrible things. And I'd, I, listen, in my work and in my life, I come across um, ex-soldiers who have had hard times, veterans you know and um i i i'd written the story before i met this guy but i met this uh, young man he was about 30 odd and he'd been in the royal marines and he'd been blown up and uh he would be he had a bit of shrapnel through his hip he'd survived various of the lads in the um truck with him had not survived and uh he was doing pretty well uh, and then i met and i had a patient who was i won't say, say names obviously an older man who'd been in Afghanistan and uh, he'd been doing okay. And then there was an industrial accident at work and somebody was injured and brought it all back. And he, he nearly, he survived of, of a, a group of people who didn't survive. And I've had patients of veterans who are just shattered by what they've been through. And it, it struck me that how obscene it is and how wasteful it is. We send our young men and young women, but particularly young men, off to foreign countries that have no, you know, what are they to do with these? And they're usually the poor lads who come from, you know, difficult poor backgrounds and they see the army and it's sold to them as... And then, of course, they get broken and they're just pretty much abandoned. Um, and 
the, the country that wanted them is now going like, yeah, get lost. Yeah, yeah, you're a problem. And their minds and bodies are shattered, you know, and it just struck, struck me as obscene, really, that we do this. I'm not, I'm not a pacifist, and certainly if we were attacked, we would need to defend ourselves, and I think that's legit. Uh, but uh, the plight of, and my, so my military service is, I was in the Air Cadets, I wanted to be in the Air Force, but, and then, then I was in the Territorial Army for a couple of years, uh, but I never saw any combat or anything like that. And that was that's a comp- we could go into that, the complex reasons why why they did that. But so it struck me. But then, of course, the other thing, of course, is our shadow because we are we are fooling ourselves if we say there's no darkness in us, and if we see ourselves completely as victims. So on the one hand, I'm saying you know soldiers go out there and they are the victims of these horrible things, but they're also the perpetrators of horrible things. So I think if we ignore that and we pretend that our warriors are holy warriors and do no wrong, then we're, we're kidding ourselves. The whole business is awful, and no sane person would sell it to people. But, of course, young men, some young men, f- fight, and, and that is in a nature like some dogs fight. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I love dogs, so I'm not running men down by making that comparison. So it is a complex issue, and it came out in the story, and I don't know where it comes from, but it came out and it came to this shape that in the sense that the struvel Peter is a personification of the evil inside us and not only the evil that, that we can do and we shun, but the evil we enjoy. And, you know, maybe not all of us, but some of us and probably me as well. I mean, listen, I, I enjoy scaring people. What's that about? You know, there's some darkness in me that I can write something like this. So I'm not saying here, hey, I'm pure and holy. I'm not. But I, I think what I'm saying is two things. The, the awfulness of war is, is obscene, particularly when it's adve- it, it, we're sending people to make countries safe for huge mega corporations to profit from. We send these people from poor backgrounds, we break them, we abandon them, and all it's about in many cases is so that somebody in a big corporation can sell more units. Uh, so that's what I think. One. Two. Let's not... Let's not ignore our individual shadows and darkness and the fact that sometimes some of us enjoy power and causing fear in others and perhaps causing violence to others. And then let us not, at the very end, let us not excuse ourselves from the vicarious pleasure. Why do we watch horror movies? We get vicarious pleasure in the violence and the uh, darkness. Uh, and, and it's at a safe distance, but it's still singing that song. And so that's what the end's about. The end is about, you know, don't, don't, don't pretend, don't let any of us pretend we have purely clean hands because we don't. And there we are. So that's quite deep. And so I, I'll go back to writing sweet little stories. I do do sweet stories. I know that. Um, but this, this one just had to be told, I think. And if you want, if you want to binge on darkness and despair, go and listen to my Whitehaven body snatcher uh, and have a bit more uh, of a different kind, but also, you know, of a different kind. So I feel this is probably isn't the place for me to, you know, give you my usual light. Oh, it's sunny. Went out with the dogs, collected damsons. All of those things are true. And I suppose that illustrates that, you know, as well as writing horrible stories, I uh, I do lovely things and I, I go and see my mum and uh, collect her medication for her. I'm really nice to people, but clearly I'm not, comp- I'm not 100% nice and none of us is.
But that doesn't mean we're evil. We're, we're complex. Uh, but there we are. I think uh, you, you, um, if you, if you have to, we have this shadow, and we need to know it. And if we don't know it, it's going to come and get us from outside. That's a very Jungian thing to say. You know what we don't. Um, if if we leave things undiscovered in ourselves, it will it will come from outside as if fate. So it's it's a useful thing to to know your your darkness and uh, not necessarily give it give into it. But to know it anyway. So this is a very heavy week, isn't it? But uh, and no doubt, I get a report that says uh, this video made 173 people of your subscribers unsubscribe. You know, there you go. But then it'll say, however, 400 people did subscribe. So you know, there we are. Let's just be. Uh, let's. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be listening to horror stories if you didn't like it a bit. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's me for now. You all take care. Cause I love you for supporting me. Yeah, hope that wasn't too traumatic. I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big a backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.